This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome back. I'm Saika Choudhury, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management at Wharton. And this is Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, Howard Hu- Howard Yu, excuse me, the author of Leap, How Businesses Thrive in a World Where Everything Can Be Copied. Howard is the Lego Professor of Management and Innovation at the IMD Business School in Switzerland and Director of IMD's Signature Advanced Management Program, an executive course for three weeks. And he's delivered a lot of custom training programs for major global companies, including Mars and Maersk, but also Electrolux, uh, Daimler, Nestle, Sanofi, Novartis, and of course, Lego. Howard, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me today. It's so nice to reconnect after such a long time. I know. Thank you so much for having me here. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. So I want to jump right in. I uh, know you've written this book, which is just recently released, and and Leap sounds like such an intriguing title as well. Tell us about some of the key findings that you have in that book. (laughs) Sure. Um, The the reason I really begin the book is um, when I interact with executive and manager, they always complained that their product is getting commoditized, meaning they find it harder and harder to differentiate in the marketplace, introduce new features, coming up with new offering, new innovation Mm -hmm. overnight, it almost getting copied. And it's because of this complaint really get me to trying to study and understand, taking a long-term perspective. Mm -hmm. How do companies actually can thrive in an age when everything can be copied? Mm -hmm. Could be Asian competition or the way to smart machine copying human intuition in the form of algorithm. Mm-hmm. So it's both looking in the past as well as projecting some of the lesson learned going forward as well. Fascinating. I, uh, I'm intrigued by some of the examples you have in your book, uh, including the historical ones. So let's start there. Southern textile mills. You draw that as an example. Tell us a little bit more about their situation and how they navigated it. Sure. Um, I mean, the textile industry in many ways is the uh, almost exemplar of brutal globalization or global competition. Yeah. It started off from the UK, obviously, and then fail, fairly rapidly moved to the northeast, New England. And then what you mentioned before, it is Southerner. It, uh, at the turn of the century, the Southerner really built bigger and larger textile mills. Mm-hmm. And they were busy exporting to an international growing market. This is back in the turn of the century. And the growing market they were focusing on, ironically, is China. Because the Chinese back then yeah. were craving for the cheap cloth manufacturer from the United States. And they couldn't buy enough. And it's because of the rise of the international demand, we see the expansion of Southern Mill. And they pretty much displace everyone from the UK to the Northeast and become the global contender. Of course, they were very successful until the arrival of the dollar brows from Japan after Second World War. And all of a sudden, the Southerner getting trapped by low-cost competition, first from Japan, and then from Taiwan, then from Hong Kong, where I grew up, Mm-hmm. And then later on, of course, it all migrated to mainland China. Today's is India, Bangladesh, and increasingly even to African continent. So in the textile industry, what we saw is is almost this exemplar of race to the bottom. Yeah. And no one wins. 
um, knowledge and, and 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 machines and jobs they all migrate from one country to the next to the next. And this set up pretty much the context as we examined sort of similar dynamic, not just textile, but if you're looking at personal computer, automotive, wind turbine, solar panel, yeah. industry after industry, it's almost this latecomer would always catch up to the pioneering company yeah. and displace their market position. And as a result, the country or the industry cluster collapse. And I think this is something that contemporary either policymakers to politicians to, to industry titans are very, very worried about. And that set up the historical tone for, for me to investigate further. Yeah, what I what I you know what really resonates with me, and I think that the new point you're making there is we've seen this pattern over and over again where firms like Kodak or Nokia, BlackBerry, and others mm-hmm. they struggle and they get displaced. And there's some firms like Apple and IBM and others who are able to reinvent themselves right. and really adapt over time. But the point that I, I like that you're making there as well, well, maybe like is not the right word, but that really strikes me is it has implications for entire clusters, geographies, as well as countries right. and economies. And that's where the policymaker angle comes in, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and quite right, because um, what spurred me to go on further is I want to find out are there exceptional industry where somehow the core company can continue to prosper over century. Yeah. And as a result, the industry co- cluster continue to thrive yeah. and the uh, cities continue to prosper. And where I live in Switzerland, in the east part of Switzerland, that's mm-hmm. this city called Basel. Mm-hmm. And in Basel, there are many pharmaceutical companies led by Novartis, Roche, and many others as well. Mm-hmm. Turns out Novartis predecessors, Sieber, Geige, and Sandoz, and including Roche, yeah. they have settling down a lot River Rhine in Basel for 250 years. Yeah. So here's an industry they have settling down in the same city for t- more than two centuries, mm-hmm. never being displaced by latecomer, yeah. continue to lead uh, drug discovery and treatment, so much so that the cluster continue to prosper and the city inhabitant continue to enjoy one of the highest living standards in Western Europe. Yeah. And so I get intrigued and I want, want to understand why and how. So tell us why. What's the secret to those companies being able to do it? Sure. Um, turns out back in the old days, 250 years ago, Sieber, Geige, and Sandoz, they are chemical firm. Mm-hmm. They were ke- making chemical dye for the textile industry. Now, somehow, some of these chemists discover, oh, there are medicinal benefits for the chemical dye. Mm-hmm. So the world first blockbuster, 1920s, and in fact, uh, called antipyrin, it's fever-reducing drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so... If you think for a moment, the drug discovery, the hotbed for innovation back then is all about organic chemistry. Mm-hmm. Now, you might remember back in high school, we learned about Alexander Fleming, mm-hmm. antibiotics. So after the Second World War, all of a sudden, all the pharmaceutical companies across the world, including Pfizer in the United States, they all focus around the study of microbiology to find out the next most potent fungus that's the cremo juice that kill off bacteria. Mm-hmm. This is in search for the paid dirt. So all of a sudden, everything around pharmaceutical discovery mm-hmm. is based on a new knowledge discipline called the study of microbiology. So there's a leap in terms of foundational knowledge yeah. from organic chemistry to microbiology. Mm-hmm. Now today, if you ask any scientist what's hot, 
in the discovery of drugs, of course, is genomic, informatics, DNA screening, and so on. Yeah. So again, moving away from microbiology to the whole rubric of science called genomics. So the long history of pharmaceutical companies, in fact, they are facing three different types of radical leap. Mm-hmm. First is organic chemistry, leaping to microbiology, and finally, mm-hmm. genomics. Now, compare and contrast to automotive industry, right? Until most recently, before EV or sharing economy yeah. or autonomous driving, it has always been mechanical engineering on the internal combustion engine. Right. The knowledge basically has stayed stagnate. Same thing as wind turbine, same thing as personal computer. Mm-hmm. Little wonder why latecomer can actually catch up. But if the underlying knowledge discipline continue to leap from one to another, yeah. then pioneering company actually have much higher headroom for growth if they were willing to take that leap forward. Interesting. Uh, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Saika Choudhury, and my guest is Howard Yu, Lego Professor of Management and Innovation at IMD Business School in Switzerland. Now, this leap uh, leaping sounds like an easy thing, but it certainly can't be easy. I mean, all these established firms have all kinds of myop- myopic tendencies and inertia. So how did these firms actually take advantage of the opportunity to leap? Right, right. You are really nailing down to a very important question. Um, and what I discover is there is a precondition or prerequisite. Mm-hmm. The company, if they were to survive over the long run first, is they have to run a lot of experimentation so that to reduce the dark space of ignorance. Because Mm -hmm. unlike your traditional mainstream businesses, you have a lot of knowledge and know-how. When you try to reinvent how you deliver product and services based on a new knowledge discipline, it's so hard unless you run a lot of experimentation. So I think that's prerequisite. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, we have enough knowledge or body of work around lean startup or design thinking Mm -hmm. can guide manager to embrace agility in the form of experimentation. But what I discovered secondly is even more important is Mm -hmm. at some point, the senior management team or oftentimes the CEO needs to come together based on the emerged evidence that they need to push towards a much more deliberate strategy. Hmm. Oftentimes, to the point that they need to embrace the idea of cannibalize your existing sales. Let me give you a quick example. Um, When Novartis is about to move into genomics, they were about to discover a a targeted drugs, targeting a rare form of uh, cancer, blood cancer, leukemia. It's called Mm -hmm. CML. And... um, CEO basically thought, wow, this is really interesting because it would fundamentally change the way we develop and develop and also discover targeted drugs. But inside Novartis, there's almost this compulsive fear because CML is a rare form of cancer. The population is small. From a resource allocation point of view, the corporate resources would be much better to invest in larger disease class like prostate cancer and 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 breast cancer and so on, Mm -hmm. the payback based on financial analysis doesn't justify the drug candidate to move into the uh, clinical trial and FDA approval. Mm -hmm. But Daniel Wenzel at the time basically told his top team, you know, if these targeted drugs will fundamentally change the way we conduct drug discovery, Mm -hmm. money doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead. 
So it is precisely this type of call towards the very end. Money doesn't matter. Usually needs to roll up to the very top. Now, it doesn't mean that the CEO needs to have the full vision from day one. Yeah. But at some point, the CEO does need to take into account all the hard-based evidence and move into a much more deliberate strategy in order to help the company to leap forward. So it sounds like a good leadership that's aware and responsive is also very critical in the process. Absolutely. It's really a combination between bottom-up experimentation and top-down deliberate strategy. In the end, a company is able to survive and prosper over the long run is this uh, marriage between the two strategy process. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. And so ExxonMobil, as the king of fossil fuels, should really be the ones cannibalizing themselves in the area of alternative energy sources so they can control the transition as well. Absolutely. And in fact, what I discover is, yes, pharmaceutical companies or cluster is very high tech and deep science. Yeah. What I discover is even when companies are doing much more mundane product or services, utility, energy, the principle for company to prosper over the long run is exactly the same. Um, you know, I was intrigued by this idea of Procter & Gamble, right? Yeah. They have been around for 150 years. They were making just laundry detergent, disposable diapers, very mundane product. Yeah. So if in mobile phone or personal computer or wind turbine get displaced by Asian company, mm-hmm. Procter & Gamble should not be able to survive over the long run. Yeah. But what I discover is, again, inside P&G, they have leaped from one knowledge to the next to the next again and again. Yeah. They start off building big factory. It's all about mechanical engineering, putting a, a assembly line automatics mixer to make natural soap. Yeah. And then around the 20s, radio show like this one becomes very popular. <laughs> yeah. PNG decided to come up with radio show to entertain housewife when they do housework yeah. for homemakers. So this is what people call the, the soap opera. This is really PNG pioneer. Yeah, yeah. And then they continue to master consumer psychology. Now, if you think for a moment, there are many advertising agencies that yeah. P&G can easily outsource, but they choose to do it in-house. It's like these days, people were talking about, should we outsource data analytics and big data analysis to third party, or should yeah. we do it in-house? It's exactly the same conversation. P&G decides to do it themselves. And then around the 60s, these P&G scientists discover that they can came up with they can come up with um, the first synthetic detergent, mm-hmm. the Thai brand, mm-hmm. that can allow the washing result much better. In the wake of launching the Thai brand, the technical staff at PNG basically triple overnight. Mm-hmm. So PNG never compete just on one knowledge discipline. It's a totality across all three. Uh, you know, mechanical engineering on factory, consumer psychology on insight, yeah. and finally organic chemistry. The reason I brought it up, this long example, is I want to go back to your original question. Yeah. You know, what's the role of CEO back there? Now, again, um, the last chairman who bears the family name at yeah. uh, P&G, he, be almost on their way to launch the Thai detergent, again, all the managers were very afraid. They're afraid that the synthetic detergent is going to destroy the natural soap business. Mm-hmm. That's the ivory brand, the natural soap. But then the chairman basically said, if anyone is going to destroy our natural soap business, it better be PNG. Yeah. So it's almost like this uh, fossil fuel energy company. 
if someone is going to destroy their core business on gas and oil, yeah. it better be themselves. Is this mentality can guarantee long-term survival? Makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to um, now at the end just focus on the other side, the challengers, the so-called imitators who graduate to yeah. innovators over time. And that's a point that's been made by you and has been, been out there that, you know, stage one might be imitation, but stage two really is is innovation. And we've seen that with the Japanese companies, yeah. the Korean companies, and now, of course, with the Chinese that's companies right. as well. Yeah. So it's a fascinating phenomenon. But, you know, from that point of view, it also can't be easy for these, these challengers, these imitators to move on to becoming innovators. I know you work with some of these firms like Tencent as well. How can they make that transition? Right, right. So if you're looking at company like Tencent, which owns the largest social media application in China called WeChat, they really started off just like you said. They are imitator. They are copycat. So, you know, WeChat has is nothing more than WhatsApp copycat or even ICQ. Yeah. But over the years, what we saw is the Internet turns out doesn't make the world flat. Mm -hmm. In fact, if anything, the internet is like a rugged landscape. In China, because of the Great Firewall, inside China, you don't find Google and YouTube and all these guys. In their place, there are copycats in this very beginning. Yeah. But very rapidly, this entrepreneur really zero in what are the key pain points among customers mm. and begins to develop so-called killer app features. So WeChat killer app features turns out is the red packet that allows the Chinese consumer to give each other red packet during the Lunar New Year. Oh. That turns out to be huge. This mobile payment, it takes off not like Apple Wallet at all, but started off as a game, a social networking tool for people to give each other's money. And that just takes off. But over time, as WeChat begins to discover one customer need after the other, after the other, they evolve to become almost like a monster app. So yeah. today you go to China, you can get away without a credit card, you can get away without cash, you, you order a taxi using WeChat, you go to restaurant, making a restaurant reservation using WeChat, you pay by WeChat, you buy cinema ticket by WeChat, everything you everything. do using WeChat is essentially Facebook, Instagram, you know, electronic yeah. arts and Apple Wallet all rolling to one. I love that and killer so app idea. <laughs> Howard, um, it's a great notion. I want to leave our listeners uh, with that thought. We're out of time. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. It's my great pleasure to be here. Nice to catch you up. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.